Chinese Moment of Choice on Voice America, a series created with global leaders from the Evolutionary Leaders Circle. This is your Voice America host, Dr. Kurt Johnson. This is the sixth special in our series, and it's entitled Humanity's Moment of Choice, Joining Science and Spirit, and is brought to you by the Science and Spirituality Synergy Circle of the Evolutionary Leaders in association with the Light on Light Press, the host of this Voice America series. The Light on Light Press has been publishing books by members of this circle. We are delighted to be hosting today Dr. Deepak Chopra, MD, and Dr. Paul J. Mills, both of the Chopra Foundation, and Drs. Robert Atkinson, Jude Curavan, Julie Crow, Tiffany Barsati, and William Bouchel. In this discussion, of their fascinating books. The books whose timely and fascinating content we'll be featuring from Light on Light are Dr. Paul J. Mill's new book, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists, and Dr. Robert Atkinson's A New Story of Wholeness, An Experiential Guide for Connecting Humanity. Dr. Deepak Chopra, known for so many books, most recently, Metahuman, Total Meditation, and Abundance, connects to the books through his Chopra Foundation, where Dr. Paul Mills is Director of Research. Dr. Chopra has also written the afterword to Dr. Robert Atkinson's book, for which Gene Houston wrote the foreword. The other books that will be rolling into this discussion with our other special guests are those of Dr. Jude Curavan, the Cosmic Hologram, and the Story of Gaia, the latter just recently released, and Dr. Julie Kroll, whose book is Fractured Grace, How to Create Beauty, Peace, and Happiness for Yourself and the World. And I must say that nearly all of these books are Nautilus Award winners. And we'll also be featuring two guests from among the scientists in Dr. Paul Mills's book, Science Being and Becoming, the Spiritual Lives of Scientists, Dr. Tiffany Barsodi, author of The Biology of Transformation, and Dr. William Bouchel. Full bios for all of the guests are at the Voice America show page. So with so much exciting discussion ahead of us, let's begin right away by going to a discussion of science being and becoming the spiritual lives of scientists with Dr. Deepak Chopra, and Dr. Paul J. Mills. Hello, my friends. It's my great pleasure today to be speaking to a dear friend, colleague, and in many cases, a mentor of mine as well, um, Dr. Paul Mills, who's written this extraordinary book, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. Once again, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. So, and it also has a commentary by Ken Wilbur <clears throat> and some amazing um, guest articles as well from luminaries in the field of uh, consciousness, non-duality, and science. So thanks for joining me, Paul, uh, and congratulations. Thank you, Deepak, for hosting me, and thank you for all your contributions to that book as well. Okay, so let's start. What was the motivation for writing this book? 
There were several, actually. One was, as you know, I've been a professor at the University of California, San Diego, for many, many years. And in addition to my own, let's say, kind of struggles, how to manage being so deeply into a, a, a biomedical, materialistic science framework, but also having a spiritual life, how do I balance those? And that was challenging for me over the years. And as the years progressed, I would have students knocking on my door who learned I had a kind of a reputation for being spiritual, as they would say, and they would want to chat with me. How are you doing it? How are you managing it? Can I manage a spiritual life at the same time going so deeply into the materialism? And we'd have conversations. I'd help them where I could. And, and that was part of the motivation to write a book to let people know that there are many scientists who do have deep, rich, metaphysical, mystical, transpersonal lives but who are highly successful in science. And, and if I may add, in addition, the book is about trying to understand the adverse consequences of the materialistic sciences, which you've been describing for decades, and also trying to overcome with your sages and scientists conferences and bringing people together to have the dialogues. So well, that, Actually, we are going to be resuming the sages and scientists conferences soon. Great. Uh, so stay tuned in for that. Tell me, what did you discover as a result of writing this book? I mean, I've started to read it. I haven't uh, finished it yet. But, you know, you talk about psychic abilities. You talk about extraordinary phenomena. You talk about non-local dormant potentials. And there are other scientists here that you've talked to, interviewed. What was the main common thread in all this? The main common thread is that perhaps surprising to many people that many, many scientists have a deep, rich spiritual life, meaning they have either had a deep spiritual life and that led them to become a scientist. You mentioned some of the scientists I interviewed, and I interviewed a little bit over 30 from around the world. Some had clairvoyant, psychic, these kinds of experiences as young children. And they wondered, well, what is all this about in relationship to the materialistic world that I live in? And that led them to science. Others had been deeply educated in science, had a more of a, we could call it a materialistic worldview. But then something happened. Perhaps it was through a meditation or a psychedelic drug or a stress in the family. But then they had an opening into the transpersonal. And that led them on their journey to maintain them being a scientist, but at the same time, beginning a deep spiritual journey. So part of the discovery of the book is, this is more common than people think. And I would encourage people to read the book because the stories of these scientists and what they shared with me, including you, Deepak, the, the, the richness of their lives and, and how it's transformed their scientific work as well. Many are leading the so-called charge to heal this false divide between science and spirituality. So, Paul, our association began a while ago when we actually worked together on uh, what came to be known as SBTI, mm -hmm. the Self-Directed Biological Transformation Initiative. And, you know, um, it's actually led to a lot of other things as well. Uh, Tell our audience a little bit about the findings of SBTI. Be happy to. 
Yeah, as you know, the SBTI grew out of you and I having a chance meeting at a, at a, at a mini conference. And uh, Deepak and I began to chat about the state of integrative medicine and integrative health and where is it working and where is it not working? And really where integrative medicine, at least the research side was not working is that it wasn't holistic. It wasn't truly integrative. So we launched the SBTI program, which was the first of its kind randomized clinical trial of a whole person medical system. And we chose Ayurvedic medicine for obvious reasons, the Chopra Center and my own background in it. And the study showed remarkable findings, meaning that when a person is submerged in an intensive whole person intervention, in this case for this study, an Ayurvedic approach, it, it just had so many positive benefits for the person that weren't even targeted. In addition to all the physiological benefits, and Deepak, as you know, we've published, I think, over two dozen manuscripts uh, as a result of our collaboration. But there were also spontaneous changes in self-compassion, uh, just capacity for sleep, uh, reduction in depression, uh, spontaneous increases in sense of gratitude. And I think of particular importance and of interest to you and to me was a change in their sense of identity. They had less of a sense of an egoic identity as typically defined when you ask somebody, well, who are you? They say, well, I'm an accountant or I'm this. They identify with their social role. And those kinds of tags and identities lessened quite a bit. And they had more of a sense of just being an existing in the world, part of the, the wholeness of everything. And that was the journey that they got on. So that was SBTI. And that's a the SBTI also showed some changes in genetic activity, telomerase, inflammation, et cetera, right? Yeah. Very important biologic changes too. Yeah. Uh, the genes that were responsible for self-regulation, homeostasis went up and telomerase yeah. went up, genes that were associated with Alzheimer's, chronic disease, diabetes, et cetera, went down. They were, they were down-regulated. This that is beautiful. one of the earlier studies that showed that, you know, mental process can change genetic activity or process in consciousness can change genetic activity. It's one mm -hmm. of the earlier studies. Of course, now everybody's talking about it. Yeah, it was a fabulous study, and uh, it just gave, gives us insight into the deep wisdom of traditional systems, of which I think, at least for some people in the Western model, are trying to emulate and get us towards, because we need it. I'm speaking to Dr. Paul Mills, who is the author of Science, Being and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. It's an extraordinary book with lots of anecdotes, lots of stories, lots of examples of what we would call transpersonal experiences, but also experiences that normally would be considered psychic, but actually uh, are, I think, dormant uh, non-local potentials in all of us. So, um, you know, there's one, there isn't enough time, Paul, to go through all of these um, examples. But yeah. tell me a little bit about Ibn Alexander, because, you know, he's come under criticism from some militant huh. atheists about his uh, fact that he was brain dead. What, what was your assessment of Ibn Alexander's story? Yeah. So as you mentioned, when you first started speaking about the book, in addition to the various chapters there, there's material from four guest contributors. And one of them is Evan Alexander. And I asked him to write one of the spotlights because he was deep in academia. 
And then as a result of having his near-death experience, had an awakening. And then he was trying to figure out with his life, how do I balance all of my training of materialism with now what I believe and say no to be true? And again, back to the students I mentioned, knocking on my door at UC San Diego, I asked him to write a spotlight on his advice to people who, who are deeply into materialism and perhaps books like this will give people permission who are scientists to, all right, you know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start opening the door to my own spirituality, at least in my own self, if not my work. How do I do it? And I asked him to write that spotlight for advice, you know, step one, step two, and so forth, because he's been through it. And uh, as far as I can tell, uh, he's successfully been through it. So that, that's what he wrote about. You, you, yes. No, go ahead. All right. Well, you mentioned... Uh, Yes, there are a lot of great stories in the book, and I'll mention one of them since you mentioned the non-dual. And one of the interviewees is a professor, Dusana Dorje, and she's at the University of York in the UK. And she's been deep into to Buddhism and Buddhist meditation, particularly compassion meditation. And it was, as a result of her practices, one day she went into a deeply non-dual state, and she was just in that for a long, long time. And she was struggling how do I continue my life and my work being in this state? Because as you know, the, the, the sense of self, the egoic center of perception goes away. And she wasn't sure how to, how to manage living. And one of the stories she told after this happened, she went to what are called the summer research institutes that are up in New York. The Mind and Life group hosts these. And while she was there, she came across a, um, a, a Buddhist monk. And she said, may I speak with you? I'm struggling with the experiences that are unfolding me in me. And he said to her bluntly, well, th this is the path that you've walked upon. And you can either go back and accept the conditioned reality that you have been living in your whole life, or you can figure out how to manage the new state of consciousness you're in and progress with your life. And it was a deep release for her. She just cried in, with the monk and, and she just realized more fully what has happened to her and her decision point. And her decision was, I'm going to keep going. I will find the next step and the next step of integration and unity. And there are quite a few stories like that of this uh, so-called crossing a threshold, and then there's decisions to be made. Do I go back to what's comfortable and familiar? Yeah, I think that kind of moment has often been called the dark night of the soul where you kind of also start to question all your provisional identities. Mm. You find that, in fact, that's what they are, provisional. They're constantly <laughs> changing. I can't find an entity called Deepak. Uh, when I look at my life, you know, so which Deepak? The four-year-old Deepak, the 15-year-old Deepak, the Deepak from yesterday. And, you know, it's pretty it's, uh, kind of shocking in the beginning to discover that you're not really who you thought you were. So that has been uh, part of my journey as well. Uh, Paul, once again, congratulations on the book. And what do you hope this will help our the next generation of scientists as well, right? To rethink the real purpose of science is to maybe create a better experience, the better human experience, alleviate suffering ultimately should be the gift of science. All that, yes, Deepak, and also just alleviating the suffering within scientists themselves who are stuck in this dualistic belief system 
and who have had to suppress their own inner life as a result of the careers they've chosen. And uh, you, you, you were just mentioning the names of the chapters, and much of the chapter is written along the so-called monomyth model. Uh, Joseph Campbell called it the hero's journey, because when I was interviewing the scientists and getting a sense of their life course, much of the main features of what they had been through so beautifully fit with this idea of the monomyth, the life journey that each of us is on, and the and the challenges, the struggles, heeding the calls, transformations, giving back, and gifts, and so forth. And you'll also have noticed I, I've woven a lot of Maharishi's teachings in there because they were deeply impactful for me. As they, they were for me. me and, they were for me, yes. Yeah. Well, you talk about your own journey, and uh, very eloquently you talk about also your wife's journey, Tiffany Barsotti. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what she, she's a medical intuitive, right? Mm-hmm. How does that work? Yeah. Uh, so t- thank you, Deepak. So Tiffany is a, a few scientists I interviewed in the book who, when they were young, you know, five, six, seven, eight, had the so-called clairs, clairvoyance, clairaudience, claircognition. So in addition to perceiving what most people perceive as far as the material world, they were looking into the spiritual world to various degrees, seeing the the bio the bioenergy, the chakras, uh, maybe deceased family members and others. And for some, that was extremely stressful because they didn't know how to manage this dual perception, particularly if they were living in a family where people said, oh, that's your imagination, ignore that. But yet they knew there was truth to it. So Tiffany fell into the first category where she did not have the kind of support she needed. So eventually she consciously just shut those down until she was an adult again and then turned them back on. And that's what she uses for her medical intuition. There were two others in the book who had the same gifts as a child, but they were very fortunate. They lived in families where for the most part it was supported and they had a a social familiar context to understand the gifts, understand what they were perceiving and what it meant for them as far as their own identity. And that, in those instances, those gifts set them on the course of being a scientist because they wanted to understand, well, what is all this really about? I'm seeing all this energy here and I'm seeing this table and what's what and what's real and what isn't. And that's a beautiful uh, story. I, I will add one, one more story about the Claire's and this is fascinating. Uh, one of the uh, people I interviewed, Melinda Connor, she had high psychic abilities, clairvoyance, clairaudience when she was a child. Now, her mother was not supportive of it, but her grandmother was because she had the same gifts. So her grandmother eventually helped cultivate it for her. But her mother was a psychiatrist. And when she was a young girl, she said to her mom, hey, I can read your thoughts. And her mom said, no, that's impossible. No, you can't. So she went on to read her thoughts over the course of minutes and nailing them perfectly. The next day, the mother said, you're coming to work with me. And she took young Melinda to work, sat her in the hallway outside of this room. And Melinda sat there for a few hours. And during those couple of hours, she would see some people being escorted into the room. Maybe 15, 20 minutes later, they would be escorted out. And she was perceiving what happened. And on a bioenergetic scale, their, their, their biofields were completely distorted, their, their sense of self. Something was going on in that room that was really harsh and harmful to these people. After several hours and Melinda's sitting there getting more and more distressed, her mother comes out and sits down 
Well, it turns out that was the ECT room, electroconvulsive therapy. Yeah. And her mother said, Melinda, this is what happens to people who hear other people's thoughts. Oh my God. Yeah, so it's a dramatic statement. I don't want you to even talk about this anymore. That's basically what her mother was saying. Just forget it, bury those abilities. But as I said, luckily her grandmother had the abilities too and, and nurtured and cultivated them for her. Amazing. You and I also met this young boy, Akhil, I know the yeah. autism. Can you share a little bit about him? Yeah, Akhil, he's one of these savants. He has he's a he's an autistic child. He's a savant in the domain of numbers and physics, and mathematics. And uh, Deepak and I went uh, and visited him at his home years ago with his parents. And we did some research with him because he's highly psychic and telepathic. And he and his mom basically communicate uh, psychically, telepathically. They don't need to use words. And uh, he's been uh, getting older, doing better in school. Uh, we saw them maybe a year ago, actually, Deepak. Does he still have those abilities? He does, very much so. Right. Yeah. Amazing. So there, there are many people with these abilities, but I think due to our scientific materialistic wow. society, they're poo-pooed, ignored, and then people who have them suffer with them because they don't have a perspective and support. And those who don't have them aren't given leeway to develop that natural part of our own being. And we need to resolve that. The book is called Science, Being and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. Author is Paul J. Mills, PhD, professor, University of San Diego, esteemed colleague and teacher. Paul, thank you very much and all the best with the book. And uh, I hope to see you again. We'll be resuming Sages and Scientists, I hope soon. And uh, all is good. Thank you. Thank you, Deepak. Yes, thank you so much, Drs. Deepak Chopra and Paul J. Mills, for that discussion of science, being, and becoming the spiritual lives of scientists. We'll be returning to two of Dr. Paul Mills' guests from the book later in the broadcast. Next, we want to go to Dr. Robert Atkinson, a two-time Nautilus Award-winning author of The Story of Our Time, and his new book just released this week, A New Story of Wholeness, An Experiential Guide for Connecting the Human Family. For discussion with two guests, Dr. Jude Curavan, author of The Cosmic Hologram and the just released The Story of Gaia, and Dr. Julie Kroll, whose well-known book is, as we said, Fractured Grace. And not coincidentally, all of these guests are members of the Evolutionary Leader Circle, whose book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions and Hope for the Future, is the inspiration for this Voice America series, Humanity's Moment of Choice. Before we go to Dr. Robert Atkinson, let's just remind ourselves for a moment of that Gold Nautilus, COVR, and Living Now award-winning book, Our Moment of Choice, with this short message from its publisher, Beyond Words, Simon & Schuster, after which you'll hear Dr. Robert Atkinson, one of the editors of that book, introduce himself and his guests, Dr. Jude Curavan and Dr. Julie Kroll, to discuss A New Story of Wholeness, an Experiential Guide for Uniting the Human Family.
Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time, from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith, Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come for all humanity to be united in purpose. This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. Thanks so much, Kurt. I'm Dr. Robert Atkinson, author of A New Story of Wholeness, an experiential guide for connecting the human family. And I'm here with my guests, Dr. Jude Caravan, author of The Story of Gaia and the award-winning The Cosmic Hologram, and Dr. Julie Krull, author of the award-winning Fractured Grace, host of The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected, and founder of Good of the Whole. We'll be talking about my book, a new story of wholeness. And I'll start off with a story to set our context. This is a story about stories. There was a time when people gathered around campfires, the center of community life, to share stories that embodied the values and principles they lived by. These stories held the community together and gave them a shared purpose. They were unit of narratives essential to their individual and collective well-being. Then there came a time when communities expanded, spread out, became more diverse, and experienced conflict and disorder. Out of this discord emerged divisive narratives that maintained separation. Today, as we approach a consciousness of global integration, a new story of our wholeness is needed to frame this interconnectedness. It is necessary now for our own survival to come together again through unitive narratives. As we share our own story of living into wholeness, we will reconnect the human family one story at a time. So there we have a storyteller's history of the world, a concise version of how stories evolved over the millennia. Living in a divided world, nothing may be more vital right now than a healing vision that guides us toward wholeness. A new story of wholeness offers just that by decoding a pattern hidden within the structure, structure of story itself. 
The book is framed by three principles that underlie this pattern. First, the evolution principle says evolution is directional toward ever wider circles of unity. Second, the consciousness principle says consciousness is an innate potentiality dependent upon the, the initiative we take to actively investigate reality. Third, the wholeness principle says reality is one and all of creation is a whole. Putting these three together, we see that consciousness evolves toward wholeness. The book also has Gene Houston's forward, reweaving our stories and Deepak Chopra's afterward, wholeness is what we are, which offer compelling and insightful bookends to this essential and comprehensive principle-based toolbox for understanding the direction and pattern of our evolving consciousness and how the individual and collective levels are always intertwined and interdependent. I think a big clue to our living into wholeness can be found in Plato's vision. He said, perhaps there is a pattern set up in the heavens for one who desires to see it, and having seen it, to find one in himself. This is derived from a holistic worldview as expressed in the hermetic principle of, as above, so below, all things accomplishing the miracles of the one thing. A new story of, of wholeness shows how we discover this pattern in ourselves through a wide range of systems of guidance and practice meant to assist us in the journey to our fullest potential. In mythology, this pattern is seen as departure, initiation, return. In mysticism, it is a process of awakening, purification, and union. In ritual, it is separation, transition, incorporation. And in psychology, we go through the stages of birth of the ego, death of the ego, birth of the whole self. This central pattern of transformation is evident in the basic structure of story, too, which is not just beginning, middle, and end, but on a much deeper and more meaningful level, beginning, muddle, and resolution. It is the muddle or conflict and challenges that is the core of the pattern that brings the process of transformation to its completion or resolution. When we merge all three ways of knowing or practices into one, we come up with a blueprint for living into wholeness consisting of three main parts that I refer to in a story of wholeness as call to wholeness, path of purification, and return to wholeness. This pattern is part of our archetypal DNA. It guides our evolving consciousness, transforms our lives, keeps our focus on the wholeness of all things, and keeps humanity on its evolutionary path. This book brings all the paths to wholeness back together as one and provides the context, framework, and all the reflective writing exercises needed for telling our stories of wholeness. So now I'd like us to talk about what it would be like if there really is a timeless universal pattern found in the heavens and in us 
as well that is designed to guide us toward unitive consciousness. How might that change the way we live our lives if we really did believe and live as though all things in the universe are tied together, how would things be different? So what do you think? Is there something out there and within us, guiding us personally and collectively toward wider and wider circles of unity, ultimately toward a unity of the whole? Yeah, we both want to jump in, don't we, Jude? This is like juicy stuff. We both want to jump in here. You know, um, I I love this question and this imagining because you've just laid out a, a beautiful blueprint for us, Bob, and this book does it so eloquently and, and does it multidimensionally for us. And the thing that's exciting about this potential, and so I want to say yes to answer your question. Yes, of course, of course. But the thing that's just really brilliant about this um, manuscript is that we've documented the individual journey here, and you've done this beautiful job, you know, with mythology, mysticism, ritual, psychology, and then story and narrative here that's important. And the thing that's most exciting for whatever this guiding journey on our path to wholeness is, is that millions on our planet have had these direct experiences of unity and the 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 pathway of wholeness have come in such individual ways unique ways and a lot of times in secrecy in in the in the closet in the shadows in the you know our own unique experiences and expressions of this and as I read your book and I contemplate your question today. I think an important piece for the listeners, especially of this show today, um, is a demonstration of the collective is going through this journey together right now. We are waking in more and more um, capacities as 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 not just individuals here, but we're starting to begin to weave our experiences together to share it. And as a species, really taking this journey together. And, and you know, if we're thinking about this journey as a spiral or the, the staircase or a, um, the, the piano keyboard that Elizabeth Satoris talks about, is that we're all coming into this experience collectively from different vantage points, different lenses that we're interpreting through, right? We're seeing this experience, feeling it. It's a direct experience, but also we're, we're not having to do it alone anymore. So the more we can begin to share this, not just the narrative of the hero's journey and the monomyth, but to really bring alive the juiciness of the details, that it's not just in movies and storybooks anymore. And how can we do this together? So I'm just going to pause there because I know Jude can jump right in here. And I just think a new story of wholeness is, is a foundational piece of our collective journey that now we can look at what's happening and, and make sense of it as a species now, not being afraid anymore, not being closeted or or intimidated, but to really come out in our sharing as a shared purpose 
of of what unitive narratives do do. So I love the invitation for us to to rewrite this even and and to ground it. Thanks so much, Julie. Great. Um, same question for you, Julie. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Julie. We both were wanting to jump in because both Julie and I are so excited about this wonderful book that you've you your genius has brought forward, Bob. So congratulations and. And it's so timely as well, because this is a moment um, where, as a species, we really do need to wake up from this illusion of separation, as you so beautifully put it, and, and guide us into a remembered wholeness, because wholeness has always been the reality, not just of, of humanity and our planetary home. But what we're realising now beyond the psychology and the mythology and the, the deep wisdom and insights that they bring us as a human consciousness. An emergent cosmology is now showing us the evidence at all scales of experience that our entire universe exists and evolves as a unified entity. And one of your, your, your three points of principles of evolution, consciousness, wholeness, this emergent cosmology is of a conscious universe in its wholeness, and a universe that is doesn't just exist and evolve as a conscious, living, uh, unified entity, but actually embodies an evolutionary impulse from simplicity to complexity and ever greater levels of both individuated self-awareness, which is the story of, you know, the, the book and the return to wholeness, and our, but also our interdependence. And even deeper than that, the recognition that we are fundamentally inseparable. So I, you know, I joined the, the point that Julie was referring to, that the, the, the monomyth and the hero's journey was an individual, a personal journey from essentially loneliness to all oneness. And it seems now that the evolutionary impulse of our entire universe and our planetary home Gaia, which is flowing through us, is, is, is not just about personal evolution, but is and is revolutionary, but it is we evolution. It is the evolution of we, of us, of all of us on this journey homewards. So on that basis, there are, as Julie also said, and as, as you say so beautifully in the book, because what I love, especially about the book, is how practical it is, how eminently rooted and accessibly it is rooted in practical steps that we can take along that journey and how we can link up and lift up with others on this revolutionary journey. And you talk a lot about trinities, and as you both know, I love trinities too. And one trinity that I've been working with that I think speaks to this journey to wholeness is the three paths, the, 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 the traditional paths to enlightenment or, or a remembered wholeness, were the way of understanding, the way of experiencing, and the way of embodying, or the way of, as I say, the sage, you know, the understanding that, that we are whole, that our universe is whole. Um, the way of the shaman, the way of the, of the experiential journey, and the way of the seer, 
you know, the revelatory aspect. And all these paths are represented in your book so beautifully, so eloquently. But now these paths are, are literally integrating. So it is the shaman, the, the sage, the shaman and the seer. And I'll just finish really going back, Bob, to what you started to say about how unitive narratives um, bring us together. They underpin and frame our communal way of seeing each other and the world. And we've told those stories around campfires, around hearths for many men, as long as it's meant, as long as it's meant to be human, I think. And the word hearth and the way heart come from the same root word. And they both relate to our innate wholeness. So thank you again for writing this book to help guide us all to that homecoming. Mm. Thank you so much. Wow. <clears throat> I think um, I think what both of you have said so well and, and emphasized so nicely is the um, the principle, the, the the overarching principle that the book is written on, which is the holistic worldview principle of as as above, so below. That came through so clearly in, in everything that you were both saying. And and that's um really I think important uh, takeaway for for everyone too is that when we see that and live according to that holistic worldview as above so below all things will accomplish the miracles of the one thing mm. so thank you very much this has been great I think um, um your insights into a new story of wholeness have been really uh, helpful to all the potential readers out there. And that was a really great introduction for uh, people to look into this book further. So thank you very much, Jude and Julie. And we'll go back to Kurt now. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Robert Atkinson, Jude Curavan, and Julie Kroll for that discussion of a new story of wholeness. And just to remind everyone that you can watch videos of the book launches and other discussions of both Science Being and Becoming and A New Story of Wholeness at YouTube at the Sacred Stories channel. That's YouTube at the Sacred Stories channel. And you can find out more also at lightonlight.us and sacredstories.com. And further, all of these guests will be back with us for a short wrap-up together later as we close out the program. Now, now we're going to be going over in a moment to Dr. Paul Mills' further discussions with two of his guests in the book, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists, Dr. Tiffany Barsotti and Dr. William Bouchel. Right after this short message from the publishers of the Evolutionary Leaders Award-winning book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions, and Hope for the Future. Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, 
and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time, from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith, Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come for all humanity to be united in purpose. This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. So, welcome back to the Convergence on Voice America. You have been listening to Dr. Deepak Chopra and Paul Mills discussing science being and becoming the spiritual lives of scientists. And Dr. Robert Atkinson and guest Dr. Jude Curvin and Dr. Julie Kroll discussing a new story of wholeness. Both books have been at number one in various categories at Amazon. Now, for this next section, we're going to be joining Dr. Paul Mills in two sequential discussions with two of the scientists in his book, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. First, Dr. Tiffany Barsodi, following on Dr. Mills' discussion with Dr. Chopra that you just heard earlier about the spiritual or psychic gifts known as the Clares. Very fascinating. And then with Dr. William Bouchel concerning extraordinary and life-changing spiritual experiences as well. To add a bit of context there, Dr. Bouchel is a longtime scholar of such phenomenon but was not quite sure what to make of them. So he was so surprised himself when he had his own extraordinary experience. And you'll note how his remarks express his own surprise at the range and dynamic of such experiences. So we're going to go to those now with Dr. Mills introducing each one of those short discussions sequentially. So now over to this very interesting section. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Mills, author of the book, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. And it's my great pleasure to have with me one of the scientists I interviewed for the book, Dr. Tiffany Jean Barsodi. And uh, Tiffany was uh, gracious enough to share with me some of her very early experiences into the spiritual world, which I'm asking her today for you listeners to share with us some of those stories that had such a meaningful impact on her to choose eventually her life to become a medical intuitive as well as a scientist. Tiffany, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. This is so great. I love being a part of this whole beautiful excursion and discovery. Thank you. Thank you. And the book, you shared with me how when you were very young, 
you had all the clairs, the clairaudience, clairvoyance, claircognizance, but that it was was really an overwhelming experience for you because you had no perspective what to do with those experiences. And, and, and I'd like you to speak about that again and how that really ended up leading you in your life's direction. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I do. I call it Claire overwhelming. And I think honestly, most children, all children are born open. It's to what degree does it get to stay open depends on, I guess, a person's karma, a person's soul's path and journey. This was very much part of my soul's path and journey is to go through this experience of it being overwhelming. And for some people, I think there can be beautiful experiences such as angels and seeing, you know, maybe past loved ones who have died that have a very tight connection to the family. For me, what I saw are things that are like what would show up in nightmares. And I had prophetic dreams that I thought I was causing. And so I was afraid to go to sleep. I was I was always perceiving, I was always perceiving that that's the way it was and, and perceiving at all of these different levels mm-hmm. and not really having an organization or what to do about it. And luckily in my, I, I could speak with my mom about it, but she was young in the whole process of what all of these energies mean as as well and trying to help me figure it out. But there, there's a lot more now available for parents and young ones who are having experiences such as mine. You would describe that at one point, it was so overwhelming that you started in your mind to try to find ways to taper it off to to lessen the amount of information coming to you you know from these other dimensions that you were trying to sort out what it meant what was i perceiving what is this being there and that being there so forth and then that your mom at one point after you spoke with her handed you a book and what was that book about yeah so i was having a conversation with her about hey i i really want to make this stop this is like no good she's like no tiffany this is a gift and I was, this is not a gift and let me say this also that was really important because I think it would have been a gift looking back at all of this if people would have actually listened to what was coming through. Mm. The adults, I told them who was trustworthy in our environment. I made I was very vocal. It was I was not shut down. I, I wanted these things to be shut down later on, but as a person and as a young person, I was very vocal about the things that I saw and wasn't trying to hide in any of it. But when I would explain what it was that I was seeing, either they didn't know what to do about it, and but I would straight up tell my father, for instance, those people are not trustworthy and I never want them in our house again. And who was going to listen to what was I six at the time, mm-hmm. you know, between five and six, something like that. Like, and I would freak out. I would start, you know, tearing my toys apart and, you know, doing things like that, that cause they wouldn't listen. Mm-hmm. And so that was another torturous aspect of, 
okay, great. It's like on some level, I'm being shown these truths about people and situations and, and all of that. And I'm like, well, what good is the information if if it can't be heated and acted upon and all of that? So it was another reason for me to will it down. So my mom said when she when I would say, I, I really want this to go away. And I wanted to have the have none of this. I didn't want any relationship with any of this. She gave me a book that I think my memory says that it looks like this. It's a red cover with white letters, ESP. And it's right under ESP. It said extrasensory perception. And it was a pretty, you know, sizable book for such a a young person. This is now when I was a little bit older Mm -hmm. and could actually read and all of that. She wasn't giving me such a book at age six. (laughs) But when I was very vehement about willing these things away, that's when she gave me the book. And also because I would go to school and say things that were inappropriate to my friends and talk to them about their mother or father or grandfather who had just passed away. And it's like, well, death isn't really death. They're right here, blah, blah, blah. Well, that was torturous for other young people to hear. So I, when she said, but covet this book, this book is is for you. And if you start telling people about all of this, the, the, your gifts, then they're going to go away. And I was like, oh, plan. Okay, great. <laughs> now I went to school and I said, this is me. And I showed everybody who would listen and they showing all, them the book, the book. Yes, this is me. And, and they would be like, what, what is she talking about? It didn't it was meaningless to them, except for the people that I had, who were my friends that I would tell different things to. And it's just like, they go run off crying to the, <laughs> to the teachers or whatever. So but it worked. It, it did. It did. I I really willed it away. I didn't want any of it anymore. And then I, when I was, it was actually really bad when I started driving because what I now know is I created OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder in my life and really intolerable anxiety. And this it was all the voices and all the impressions and all these perceptions added up to a decibel that was hard to manage. Are you saying in some ways you willed it away from your, your conscious mind, you were able to turn down those perceptions, let's say the clairaudience and the clairvoyance, but there was still impingement of this information, say in your subconscious, and that was over time having an adverse effect on you as a person, let's say, as the outer personality in the world, because you describe in the book mm-hmm. that you later, yes, develop obsessive compulsive disorder, you develop physical illnesses, and it, it was all becoming very intolerable until you went to see a medical intuitive. Yeah. So what I'm describing is, of course, I didn't know that the OCD and the anxiety at the time were related to any of that. I put that together later on in my life. And it was also in helping other people with these disorders that I figured it out also for myself. So, but the big thing is, is that I just needed come to come face to face because I still had really good intuition that it didn't totally go away, but I wasn't bombarded by all of the images, the the way that I was. <laughs> when I willed it away. So, Mm -hmm. but what I now know about 
OCD and anxiety is this for me, and and it's a little different maybe for some people, is this heightened sense of of knowing and then not having channels for it. And and so that's how it would manifest in my life. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share then that ultimately the the challenges you were having led you to to speak with a medical intuitive? Yeah. And that medical intuitive, if I may summarize, essentially said, you're supposed to be doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be using these gifts you had innately that you had turned away from to get those back online and to use them to help other people on their life's journey. That's true. And there were a lot of years in between, you know, what you just described and I got sick. So it was one of these things where, geez, I wasn't getting well, no matter what I was doing. And I knew enough about enough of things intuitively. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go to a medical intuitive. And she, she said, you got three days to make up your mind. You're supposed to be doing what I'm doing. (laughs) I was like protested. I said, no, that's not how God works. And she says, oh yeah, it's like a job offer. It's on the table and then it's not. Mm -hmm. And so it was a a call to action. It was that I, I, it's the hero's journey and the heroine's journey that I, I had the opportunity or not to respond to the call. And I did ultimately, and I'm grateful for the fact that I did, but it's not always an easy one as, as you well know, and as you've documented so well in your book with Mm -hmm. many of us that have had these, I think everybody is called to the hero's journey and the heroine's journey. It's to the extent that we argue with it or flatten it or say, nope, but I put calls on mute. Nope. Let the answering (laughs) machine get it. Nope. Uh, (laughs) I can't tend to it, whatever it may be. And then it just, you know, all things coalesce. Mm-hmm. What I now know working with several people who did not respond to the call, their illnesses didn't abate. abate. Yeah, they they did not, they continued to be pervasive in their lives and they ended up having to retire from what they were doing, which they ultimately needed to go a totally different direction in their lives anyway. So I look back on a lot of this with all of these experiences and I'm, I don't wish the spiritual two by fours on anyone, but I recognize the importance of them mm. at times. Yeah, indeed. When, when you were first speaking just a few moments ago, you, you said that most people when they're young, children have a certain degree of openness but that we're socialized to begin to close these gifts down. However, unconsciously, you you chose to do it consciously because it was unbearable. Many of us as children, it, perhaps the gifts aren't on as strongly, but we eventually shut things down. I wonder how much of that leads to a lot of the depression and anxiety we see in adults uh, throughout society. It led to severe OCD, as you described for yourself, but how many of us carry around these chronic malaising in our psyche because we've disassociated ourselves from some of our inherent spiritual, let's say, soulful gifts. And we're walking around in life somewhat blinded because we don't have these other faculties on board that we're given as gifts to guide our lives. Do you think do you think that's reasonable? Oh, I absolutely think it's reasonable and have discovered this in my practice, but also the I think this is really worthy research. 
And, you know, research always begets more research, right? It's just like the next question gets to get asked as a result of what you learn. And I appreciate that about science as a being someone who's inquisitive and curious about, well, why is that? But as you say so poignantly, that science can't really always give us the why, but in more of a qualitative journey, we could really identify maybe some of the whys and it can be very helpful in courses that I run, online courses for um, helping people with anxiety, one of the key things that I find is what is the the absolute creative thing that you know that you need to be doing in your life that you're not doing? Because that is usually 90%. And then I have a whole big long list about, mm-hmm. you know, I've got 21 or 22 different uncommon causes of anxiety and they usually produce a lot of ahas in people that are figuring that out. And one of them is the blocked creativity, being on our soul's path. Yeah, yeah. Well, that reminds me, and if we can close out our interview today on this topic, that in the second chapter of the book, which I've reviewed the different heeding the calls in most of the scientists I interviewed, We closed that chapter with part of an interview from you where I asked you what kind of advice you would have for people reading this book who are reflecting on their life and wanting to heed a call. Maybe they had the call long ago. Maybe they're looking for more meaning and direction in their lives. Where do they start to find the answers? And you said, go back to the childhood inspiration, the things that just you became so absorbed in where your creativity was flowing, your sense of purpose and meaning and joy. Find that again, connect to it, and then just stay with that and allow the universe, you had said, to then guide you back on a path where those gifts can start emerging again. And that was beautiful advice. Beautiful. I'm glad. I I was saying, if you follow the breadcrumbs, you end up (laughs) well-fed. (laughs) And that is a matter of trusting the universe and also the inner child. Mm. Our our relationship with our inner child is so important for developing trust. And she, he, they are part of our creative nature and they got silenced in the process. So rekindling that relationship is really golden. Beautiful. (laughs) Thank you, Tiffany, for taking some time uh, to chat with us today. Thank you. Thank you for writing such a beautiful book and telling such important stories. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Mills, author of the book, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. And I'm here with Dr. William Burchell, a medical anthropologist whom I interviewed for the book. During your interview, Bill, you told me about an amazing mystical experience you had that changed you, it changed your life, And it also changed the approach you have to your scientific work. And I'd be grateful if you will share that story with our audience. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I I would love to do that. And thank you. It's an honor to be uh, a part of this great project that you're doing. So I had been studying for decades uh, human potential through practices like meditation and yoga And I believed and I sought scientific evidence for a really profound potential that humans have, which is not even uh, fully appreciated in the the world of um, 
alternative science and so forth. So I, I was a believer in that uh, potential, but I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't understand where, where it might come from, originate from, emanate from. And um, I really didn't believe in like an ultimate truth to divinity or a mystical experience. And that was, you know, for the first half century of my life. And um, so this, this, this experience that happened to me was completely out of the blue. I, I never, you know, expected it. I, I never, it, it was beyond my imagination and comprehension. And to this day, it's, it's a mystery. You know, I guess that's why myst mystical is spoken of for this kind of thing. Um, I was not really on a path of searching. I mean, I was doing my scientific work and I was a believer in it. It was profound work to me, but I wasn't really seeking for any, any experience myself. And um, I happened to be between... Um, jobs and life situations in, in a bit of a difficult time while I was just emerging from that. And I had this experience um, and it, 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 um, it was a, like a holographic vision. So it, it never had um, any uh, a connection to any other experience I had in, in that sense of wasn't imagination. It wasn't daydreaming. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a hypnagogic episode. Uh, it, it, it was totally of its own category, which is also what one of the key things that made me realize that this was a whole other experience. Now it happened to um, it happened to um, involve centrally a, uh, a woman that I knew and know who was a friend, um, a very good friend, but a very new friend. And um, I suddenly uh, I was just moved into a new place humble place was just climbing out of this difficult situation that I mentioned. And suddenly no, no preparation, no, no reason that this would just happen out of the blue like this. I see her dressed in a sari and, um, and sitting in the middle of a garden. She's a beautiful woman, a white sari, and I, I, you know, I was confused why this was happening. But within like nanoseconds, I was flooded with the most intense emotions. I can't even describe. Ecstasy was part of it, but it was more than that. Actually, it was wider. I mean, this happened almost 10 years ago, and I'm still figuring it out. I'm still unpacking it. Um, 
it, and it was definitely erotic. You know, I understood it immediately as a tantric experience, but I had never been particularly a believer in this kind of tantrism. But within moments, there was no doubts at all inside of me. And my whole life was full of doubts. You know, mo most every moment. Of my, well, not that's a little exaggeration, but I never really went far from doubting. And this, I was just immersed in this. And I'm looking up at her in the vision, and it's holographic because it's three-dimensional. And she just glanced at me out of the corner of her eyes. She's very bright, green, radiant eyes in, in real life. And here they were like, almost like a laser. And at that moment, I mean, the, the best way I could describe it is like a Kundalini rising thing, although there were no neurological dimensions to it. I'm familiar with, you know, Kundalini because I've researched, um, you know, religious experiences. But all of my um, emotional centers became turned on at the most intense level and connected. Now, I had always had a problem with compartmentalization of the different parts of myself, including, let's just use the term, the erotic dimension. But this, they all flowed together. And my, my heart opened like it never really had in my whole life. And, you know, I, I was just... Speechless. I mean, I've been studying religious experiences for, you know, over 30 years at this point. And even though I knew about these kinds of things, you know, I mean, I wasn't prepared for the emotion, the spiritual feeling and emotion. And um, it, it really, what happened, and it took me a while to remember, to realize this, but every peak experience that I ever had was condensed into that. From my whole life, even like, you know, childhood, early childhood, all the way, you know, so it wasn't only erotic, it was an expanded eros. And the, the universe, which I felt like I was engaging with the whole universe, you know, that became eroticized, so to speak, but not in a limited or restricted way. It's hard to explain. But there, there, was, so, it, there was so much, like, intense chemistry and energy between me and the universe. Although, you know, of course it was channeled through this woman. And, you know, later on, um, I discussed this with her. Um, she, she didn't, she had no awareness when this was happening. We weren't, you know, geographically near each other. She was on 
the other, you know, other side of the Hudson River. But um, but it turned out that she was in fact a, a tantric practitioner, a yogini, and my experience was of her as a human, definitely as a human, but at the same time as a divine being. And that's why I've used the term Dakini, which um, I believe originated in Indian, um, Indian religion, maybe Indian Buddhism. It's, I'm, I'm aware of its use in Tibetan uh, uh, Buddhism. Um, but but I, I to this day, which is almost ten years later, I mean I you know I have an ongoing um, friendship with her. Um, an interesting, unique relationship. I I experience her as simultaneously human and and uh, beyond human. That's beautiful. And she she's she's had a lot of like um manifestations of magical things around her that everyone that knows her has seen. Or you know, I mean they the specific ones. Can I ask you something, Bill? You you noted that you had insight into her divinity and you had used the term imminent divinity. Yes. This unit of experience with the universe, this then gave you insight into your own divinity. Yes? Yes. Um, I would have to say that that was a slower, more gradual process because, you know, I don't know, issues of low self-esteem, one could say. Um, you know, in, in, as, as our friendship has developed, She's the one that's been like telling me that that my divinity has influenced her. So that's kind of where I'm getting that sense from. I see. More than what? like me feeling inside I'm like, you know, I'm divine like this myself. I you know, I mean I do feel that that's probably true of all of us, but um, you know, I, that type of experience personally has come more from her feedback to me. Beautiful. Um, and a question then I have is that you, you, as a medical anthropologist, you shared a moment ago, you've studied religions, mysticism around the world. Then you stepped into it experientially, and now your understanding is different. Yes. And what does this tell you about human potential? about anyone who might be listening to this radio show and, and their own possibilities for changing the, the depth and capacity of their own experience? It's a great question. Uh, the only word I would change uh, your background to it is I stepped into this realm. I think I was yanked into it. You know, um, I mean, I, I, I use for a rhetorical purpose the, this distinction because I truly, um, you know, I feel like I could not have guided myself. You know, I, could, I couldn't have 
in a sense, I couldn't have gone on a quest consciously and deliberately that would have made me arrive there, here. With that yeah, well, I understand that. And you, you had said since this experience, you said about studying yeah. these so-called Dakini experiences and imminent divinity. Yeah. They typically just, they just come upon a person unbidden, so to speak. It's not as if people can purposely track these down and step into them. Is that correct? No, no, no. There's a range from my studies, which involve interviews with, you know, a lot of practitioners, including, you know, some very highly advanced ones. Um, you know, when I said that, that I felt like I couldn't have found that. I mean, it, 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 it reminds me of an expression I once heard. Um, he uh, or she who stopped, you know, stop searches is, uh, is found. Stop searching is found. But I know that people have sought these kinds of experience and, and had them as a result of that. And when I'm saying this to possible interested people listening, my message is, you know, that there's such beautiful, profound, powerful, mind-boggling experiences that, you know, that anybody might have. And that maybe that's a takeaway from what happened to me. I don't feel any like, you know, I, I know I had a very unique experience because of all the feedback and I've talked to a lot of people about it, but I, I don't feel like, you know, it's bragging or anything because I didn't do anything for this. It just happened to me. <laughs> yes. So well, then, but that's why I said to share it. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I, I'm grateful for you sharing it today. And so a message is that we human beings, we are capable of such depths of experience yes. that most often people aren't aware of. And if I might add, a, a message would be to our listeners, please uh, keep yourself open to the possibility of what might yes. be presented to you. And then learn from that experience, allow it to work on you and transform you. Well, thank you, Bill. I'm really grateful uh, for you taking the time to share this most intimate and life-transforming experience. Thank you so much, Paul. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Paul Mills, for following up with those two discussions. And thanks, everyone, for sticking with us through all of this fascinating material, which is just a taste of what is in these two amazing books. Now, we're going to wrap up now by bringing our main guests back together for a moment to talk with each other, first with Dr. Paul Mills and Dr. Robert Atkinson, talking about what their two books hold in common, and then cosmologist Dr. Jude Curavan commenting what she sees as the landscape that is held together by these important books and those of all the other guests that we've featured. So we're going to start then with Paul Mills and Robert Atkinson, and then go directly to Jude Curavan. And then I'll join you again to wrap up this program and to tell you what's next on the Convergence on Voice America. So I'm here with Dr. Paul J. Mills and Dr. Robert Atkinson, the authors of Science Being and Becoming and A New Story of Wholeness. And this will give them a chance to talk to each other about their books. So I'm going to begin by asking Paul to point out or ask some questions to Bob about the affinity of the two books 
And that can get them talking about how these books share so much in common. So on that note, over to Paul. Thank you, Kurt. Uh, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity for this conversation. And Bob, it, it was such a pleasure for me when we first met. Kurt had introduced us and told me about your expertise in the monomyth. And, and then when we met, you shared further. You had spent time with Joseph Campbell and really dug into this. And that just resonated so much for me because, as you know, I had structured part of the book, uh, The Science Being and Becoming, based on the monomyth and the the journey that the different scientists I interviewed had been on. And I tried my best, not being an expert in this area, to cover the main stages of the monomyth. And one of the questions I have for you, as I've gotten to know you and, and your books that have delved into this area, is where, where might humanity be now on this larger monomyth journey? The, the book had that I, uh, The Science Being and Becoming, is really examining in each individual scientist's journey. They heeded the call, this happened, that happened, but you deal on the level of a much broader consciousness of really, I think, humanity and the evolution of consciousness itself. And so I've been wanting to ask you, where are we? Where is humanity now on this long journey of evolution and development and coming into a greater awakening of itself? Yeah, thanks, Paul. A great question. And that really connects the individual with the with the collective really well. And and I just um, did want to say before I answer that specific question that it really was a pleasure to, you know, when we first got your book and I saw the way you had structured it, it was very familiar to me and not surprising, really, <clears throat> to see your book on the spiritual lives of scientists put in the framework of the monomyth. Um, which I had been working with for so many years. I mean, I, it goes back to my meeting Joseph Campbell in 1970 and, <clears throat> and, uh, and becoming a mentor. And a few years after that, publishing my first book in 1974, Songs of the Open Road, the poetry of folk rock and the journey of the hero, which illustrated how the lives of songwriters through their lyrics, followed the same pattern. And then in 1995, another book, The Gift of Stories, had a big section on personal myth-making. And now with my new book out this month, A New Story of Wholeness, I illustrate how that pattern is much broader than the monomyth, how it takes in mysticism, ritual, psychology, and and so uh, it's just a much broader, deeper, richer pattern than I had even imagined from the beginning. But it's a great question about where where we are collectively. I mean, when I when I met Joseph Campbell in my mid twenties, I was pretty much in the middle of that journey of, of that pattern myself in my own life at that time, and and just in terms of. Um, one, one way to look at it is that pattern also follows um, the, the basic story structure, not just of beginning, middle, and end, but of beginning, muddle, and resolution. And I was, I was in uh, a muddle phase of my life when I met him, and he, he just made it all a lot clearer. And then I, I had no idea that a few months after that, that I'd be 
returning to the college I graduated from and teaching a course on folk rock lyrics and on. So that was my return part that came after that. And so I, and to connect that with where humanity is now, it's it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, I think that the signs are so clear everywhere we look these days that humanity is in its own muddle. And we've got a lot of work to do to get ourselves collectively out of that muddle and and to um, l- to live into the resolution that the muddle is is given to us for. Uh, and I, I mean, you know, we can see that happening on so many levels, uh, so many different ways, um, areas. I mean, one one. If anyone's familiar with the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals, there's 17 or so of those. Every one of those is a, you know, represents a crisis that humanity is in. But we have, at the same time, humanity has all it needs to to live into what we might call the wholeness that we already are. And so I see. Um, there's no way to know how much longer we'll remain in the muddle, but we, if this pat, if this pattern means anything, and it and it has for millennia in so many settings, we will humanity will work ourselves out of this muddle and into the resolution, which will bring about the completion of the transformation that we're all talking about, and and that that's illustrated in the lives of the scientists that you interviewed and and in my book, um, uh, A New Story of Wholeness, it's all there. All the tools that we need are all there. And and I think that um, we're getting closer and closer to that, to turning that corner towards the the resolution that's awaiting us collectively. And so let me just uh, kind of turn this around and ask you, since you, how did you come to decide to frame your book with this archetypal pattern and and what insights ha- have you learned uh, about it having completed the book now? Yeah. And if, you, and if you can connect it to the collective level as well, that would be even better. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. Well, the insight came from a result of the first handful of the interviews I did. I had put together a series of questions that I wanted to use to approach the interview for each scientist. And after a handful of the questions were, uh, the interviews were completed, I began to see a pattern. And the pattern was that the scientists were resonating more with certain questions than other questions. And then when I began to ponder the questions where I had more resonance, it just popped into my mind. Oh, the hero's journey. I had read that book ages ago and had followed some of that material over time. So I began to do some reading on the hero's journey, and and lo and behold, I realized it's true. These questions that the scientists are linking with have to do with the journey, and then I realized they're sharing with me their monomyth journey and the different stages that have been most important for them, whether it was their initial awakening, heeding the call, or meeting a mentor, or meeting an adversary, and what did that look like, and how do they overcome it? And that's really how it started. And as far as a takeaway to humanity, well, to the degree that these scientists are individuals and they've been waking up, then presumably that's helping the greater collective awakening of humanity. And I was struck when you were speaking, Bob, about 
the broader application uh, of the monomyth. And I, I guess another question, if I may ask you, is how does a person best identify when they're having one of these calls? You mentioned, for example, broadly the United Nations. They're, they're, people are trying to tackle so many problems and often we're better at tackling problems when we get the insight of what the real solution is. But sometimes it's hard to identify it, at least in our individual consciousness, depending on how much noise is in there. Do we have a lot of fear around potentially making a new choice in life and so forth? That's a great question too. I mean, and I was thinking as we were talking about both of our books and I mentioned my first one, Songs of the Open Road. Yeah, it, it's, it, it, it's really, um, whether it's a songwriter or a scientist or anybody else in between, we're really talking about a universal pattern, one that everyone can experience because it's central to our archetypal DNA. And so the thing is, when we begin that, that archetypal DNA that's within us begins to become evident to us as we experience what's at the core of who we are as human beings. And so we're, we become familiar with that as we live those archetypes out in our lives. And even though they're new experiences, they feel like they're familiar because they come from within and they're universal. So, so I think that's one of the ways that more people will begin to recognize the power of these archetypes that, that connect to a pattern that is about transformation. And as that happens more, it'll it'll become more widely understood collectively as well. Mm. I love that. I really appreciate that. It's something I put in the book just in terms of the, the consciousness journey itself, that it's, it's a journey open to us all if we so choose to do it. And uh, if anything from my side, that would be a takeaway from the book for people to know that we all have this inheritance to develop our consciousness and awaken to something that is greater than us. And ultimately we realize that greater thing is actually us. And many of the scientists in the book that uh, I interviewed have becoming uh, to know that this is a reality for them. And so I hope more and more people begin to embrace these calls that come our way, sometime on a daily basis, sometime main, main, mainly uh, only every so many years but to be awake enough to heed to heed that and start the journey. Yeah, well, thanks so much, uh, Bob and Paul. Wow, that has really capped off all of the discussions that you and your guests have shared on this broadcast. So let's close now by my asking each of you, given all that we've heard on this uh, Voice America special, uh, what would you really suggest to the audience as their takeaway from the discussions of science being and becoming and a new story of wholeness. So let's start with Bob. Yeah, that's great. There's, I, I hope there are a lot of takeaways. I think there are from from uh, these two books. But what I would like, what, what I would hope people would begin to be able to do more of and to and to feel comfortable doing, is just imagine how all things in all of existence make up an interconnected whole, a oneness in which everything in the whole is an inseparable part. And if we begin to think about that and imagine creation as that, we'll see that all things are of this wholeness in motion and nothing is ever separate 
from the whole. That's that's also what uh, Teilhard de Chardin was talking about when he said a single energy at play in the world. If we can recognize that and see that happening in our own lives as well, that's a pretty pretty big take takeaway for people. I think. Mm. Yeah, Bob. Thanks. So, Paul. Yeah, from my side, I want to reference something you mentioned, Bob, and you spoke about the muddle. And you had been in the muddle at different times in your lives, and we're all in muddles here and there. And my takeaway would be for anyone listening who feels they're in the midst of a muddle on their monomyth journey, that that there's this is a normal part of the journey, and there's always hope. There's always information coming to us to help guide us out of the muddle, to step across the next threshold and just have faith and and uh, awareness and a vision that that will be there and listen for it and then act on it and move forward because that's really the uh, the journey to the next level of awakening and uh, having a more meaningful and ultimately joyful life. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Paul J. Mills and Dr. Robert Atkinson. So this creates an opportunity to ask the same question to Dr. Jude Curavan, one of the guests whose book, The Story of Gaia, we've also just introduced to you. So Jude, how would you summarize the takeaway that you'd like to suggest to our audience after they're listening to the inspiring and informative content of what's really been a fascinating broadcast? Thank you, Kurt. I mean, what's really coming to me is the commonality of our messages from different perspectives. So for me, the, the story of Gaia which is the big breath and the evolutionary journey of our conscious planet, carries on from my previous book, The Cosmic Hologram, to describe the latest evidence at many, many, uh, across many different fields of research at all scales of existence, that our, our universe, our entire universe exists and evolves as a non-locally unified entity. It literally, its appearance arises from deeper levels of, of meaningful causation and essentially it exists to evolve it actually embodies a, an evolutionary impulse so in that regard our consciousness human consciousness which has evolved after 13.8 billion years of our universe's story and 5 billion years of our planetary home story is part of that evolutionary impulse the other thing i would i would just say before really bringing all three books together is that what all the evidence is showing is that mind and consciousness aren't something we have. They're literally what we and the whole world are. And as my dear friend, Dr. Julie Kroll says, you know, unity and the wholeness of this, of this emergent cosmology shows that unity isn't an ideal. It is real. And so what I've really enjoyed hearing Paul and Bob speak so eloquently and powerfully about their own books is they're coming to the same perspective, whether it's in Paul's book, the uh, science being and becoming the spiritual lives of scientists, the scientists that he so well, you know, helps to share their stories, also tell in all cases a story of wholeness in their own experience, in their own life, discoveries of inner and outer uh, discoveries. And with Bob's book, a new story of wholeness. He, he absolutely grounds it in that manifested, realized wholeness. But 
what he does so beautifully is he he takes us through a journey into a remembered wholeness as human beings um and the tools the practical and empowering tools to help us literally remember who we really are and remember that we are inseparable we our planetary home the entire universe is inseparable in its unity and yet its unity is expressed through radical diversity so for me the, the the sort of this this whole emergent cosmology this perception as bob talks about how this story of wholeness has been grounding has been fundamental in the stories we've we've sought to share with each other the narratives we sought to share with each other that you know help us make meaning of our lives, make meaning of our role in the world. So each of the books pull with this almost awakening, this spiritual awakening to that part of who we are, part of the wholeness of who we are. Bob's journey into that remembered wholeness and my story of Gaia, which is the story of our entire universe and planetary home, and therefore us from this perspective, are all, they're not just convergent, they're, they're sort of siblings in this new story. And of course, the new story is, is deeper because stories sometimes can be true. They, they may not be true. Um, I have to say on occasion, when I was a little girl, I told stories that clearly weren't true to my mum, but she always caught me up on it. Um, so I've, I've sought the truth, I think, ever since then. But the point is that narrative, and Bob talks very well about this, a narrative is a deeper, fundamental underpinning and, and framing of our stories. And what this emergent convergence and integration of our understanding of reality is enabling us to do is to articulate, perhaps for the first time as a species, a, a species-wide, human family-wide unitive narrative based on the leading edge of science, but also convergent and integral with indigenous wisdom teachings, universal wisdom teachings, universal interspirituality tenets too. So that's this is for me an incredibly exciting moment as we can come together with all of this to understand, to experience, and to embody unitive awareness underpinned and, and framed by unitive narrative to literally empower, inspire, invite us to come together to undertake what I believe is, is the key opportunity we have at the moment, at this, our collective moment of choice, which is to consciously evolve, evolve into a remembered wholeness. That's what I'm taking away from this incredible conversation. And thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of it. Well, thanks so much to Dr. Deepak Chopra, Paul J. Mills, Robert Atkinson, Jude Curavan, Julie Crow, Tiffany Barsotti, and William Bouchel for this truly fascinating and informative program. And a huge thank you to the Science and Spirituality Synergy Circle of the Evolutionary Leaders for bringing this program to us, and to Dr. Mills for his acknowledgement of the contribution of the circle in his book. And we're happy to say that Light on Light, working with the circle, is contracting with Dr. Mills for a second book 
on the spiritual lives of scientists, which will build the discussion out to physics, cosmology, the evolutionary sciences, philosophy, and even economics. Now, you can find out more about both the evolutionary leaders and the science and spirituality synergy circle at evolutionaryleaders.net and evolutionaryleaders.net slash synergy circles, and more about each of our guests at the web pages that are noted on the Voice America show page where you've just joined us for this broadcast. It's been such a privilege to host this program and these guests here on The Convergence. Now, our next programs in December will be from two more evolutionary circles that will bring us uh, two programs, one, the Unitive Narrative Synergy Circle, and then the Contact Synergy Circle. These are going to be fascinating programs by major experts on the cutting edges of the cosmology of our universe and the intriguing subjects of unidentified aerial phenomenon and other related occurrences that have certainly come to the forefront of our global news media in the last few years. So watch for those in December here on The Convergence. So, okay, thanks so much to all of you for joining us. It's been an amazing program today on joining science and spirit. Tell your friends and colleagues about it, as it's such a pivotal issue in these challenging times. So thanks you again for joining us, and best wishes and love from all of us. <music> 